0: 1 Timothy chapter 1, and in this book, this is, it's a kind of similar in the sense that we just finished Colossians, Paul is, in the preceding passage, he's been, des- he's been describing false teachers who are trying to bring the law upon believers in Ephesus, and here Paul is now recounting his own conversion, and he highlights that it's not through keeping of the law, but through the grace of God. And he's writing here, he's writing, as it tells you in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, who is his protege, and uh, so- someone who he has trained, who has been an apprentice with him for some time. And, and although, uh, in verse 18, Paul calls him my child, he's not an actual biological child, but someone who has been brought up in the faith, someone who uh, Paul has fostered this, this young man and And raised him in the lord and and sought to disciple him and this man was very useful to Paul, and went on missionary journeys with him and and uh he here is uh, uh, the pastor of the church here in uh ephesus, and here Paul writes to him uh regarding these false teachers and these false teachings that are that are being brought in and uh and what he's doing here and what i want us to look at is this is kind of Paul's biography his testimony and we've been talking about in the book of colossians for the last couple of weeks you know what type of friends that we should have we've been talking about what type of testimony that that we should have the way that we live our life that it should buy us uh it should buy us opportunities with the world it people should be able to see who we are and, and it should uh, then open doors for us to then open our mouths about Christ. And here Paul reflects upon his testimony. He and his whole testimony is based upon the fact that he blew it. That's like his whole that's his whole thing. Like I'm off, I'm not great. I'm awful, but Jesus is awesome. That's kind of like his his, his uh, mission statement that he wants people to understand. Everyone's awful, but Jesus is awesome. That's what he's trying to get across. He wants everybody, more people like us, and we've taken on this mission of Christ uh, that that Jesus said, to go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, uh, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making these disciples and, and, and not just seeing conversions, but seeing people grow in their relationship with the Lord. And that's what Paul's desire is Uh, for the church. And, And here, he leads off with his weakness. He leads off by highlighting that he was not good enough, but Christ's grace was great. It was more than enough. And so he starts off in verse 12, and he says, "'I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord.'" He has given me strength. So Paul starts off here with with the very first thing. He says that Jesus has enabled me. He's the one who has given me strength. Paul himself wasn't strong enough. But, you know, and like you and I, I mean, that's kind of like the thing. Like we're facing difficulties in life. We're facing troubles. We're facing trials and tribulations of every sort. And, you know, we're beaten down by the end of the week. And if we're honest, it's like we're definitely not strong enough. But Jesus is strong enough. He has enabled, is what Paul's saying. He's enabled not just, uh, not just to call us to live a Jesus glorifying life, but he empowers us to do it. He gives us the grace that we need. He, he, Paul says, I thank Him who has given me strength, who has enabled me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful appointing me to his service now this is great what paul says here because basically paul says i'm the poster child for grace i am the the one that you should look to as an example it was jesus who put paul into ministry it was jesus who called paul to be a servant to go and to live his life in a way that would bring god glory he wasn't enabled to do anything uh until Jesus enabled him to do it. He couldn't go out and do it on his own, but it was Christ's commission, it was Jesus' call and empowerment that enabled him to do it. And so a lot of times we need to understand that when we want to go and live these Jesus-glorifying lives, he's called us and he's empowered us to do it. We're not going out on our own. We're not going out as, as, you know, um, people who are, going with orders but with a lack of resources we've been given the helper the holy spirit who will go with us that was one of Jesus' uh, main uh, things that he said at, at his ascension he says it's better that i go away because if i go away then i can send you the helper who who will who will lead you into all truth we've been given the holy spirit so that we might live and be empowered to live jesus glorifying lives and I love uh, how Paul is described here, how he describes himself, because this kind of this makes the, the, the playing field be really level. Everybody can aspire to the, the qualifications that we see that uh, Jesus is judging us by, right? Jesus isn't looking for gifted and talented people, he's looking for faithful people. In verse 12, it says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Not gifted, not talented. Because it's like, what level of gifting? What level of talented? I'm not talented enough or gifted enough. All that Jesus is looking for is you just got to show up. If you can show up every day, that's good. You just got to show up every day. We got to show up every day and work hard to represent Jesus well. Most of Jesus' parables featured uh, workers whose primary characteristic was faithfulness there 's faithful workers there was uh, uh, the parable of the talents, where the workers were given uh, the master 's money, and it was like, "What are you going to do with it?" And they invested it. their job was just to be faithful it didn 't matter how much the increase was was it, it didn 't matter if it was a two time ten time a hundred time fold increase in uh, the investment. It just was, did you do something faithful with it? The one guy who got yelled at was the guy who just put it in the ground, and then the master says, you could have just put it in the bank, and I could have got even the smallest amount of, uh, uh, of uh, interest on that. You could have done, like, the least amount of work, and you still would have been judged Faithful. Jesus also gives another parable where he's talking about these workers who are called into the vineyard. And some are called at the beginning of the day, and some, are called, and some are put to work at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, they all receive the same wage. He doesn't care how long you've been working for. He doesn't care how hard you worked. Just did you show up and did you work? That's all you got to do. Jesus is looking for faithfulness. We're also told in the parable there that those servants are told, well done, good and faithful servant, not well done, good and talented servant or gifted servant. Are you a faithful servant? When we're faithful, we have to remember that those people, uh, what what faithful looks like is that we've been appointed to his service. As Paul says, he's been appointed. God's calling us. He's enabled us. But we're not going to be able to go forward in that task until he's done that. And if you've placed your trust in Jesus for salvation, then you've been called. You've been enabled to to live for Christ. And so we want to go forward in faithfulness. Show up. Work hard. Be faithful. And it's important. And the reason here, if you need a reason, because I'm in school, I was always the one like, when are we gonna ever going to use this? How does this ever even matter? So I'll give give you the answer. I'll give you the, you know, the junior high smart you know, smart kid answer. We must be faithful because as Christians who are made in God's image, we're imaging God and God is faithful. And so when we display that we are not a faithful people, we're telling the watching world that God is not faithful. God will not keep his commitments. If you say that you are a Christian, you are Christ-like, you must then have those same character traits that God has, those attributes. You do what you say. That's why we're told in Scripture, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So it's a greater ramification rather than you just, whether you feel like it or not and what you want to do or what you don't want to do, but you're reflecting back on your Heavenly Father. You're telling people, this is how God's character is. He is faithful. He shows up every day. He works hard every day. So faithfulness is a key that we want to look for in our service. Verse 13, Paul goes on, he writes, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, he humbles himself here. I love this, because he he could have been like the most prideful person. We're told, he, he gives a self-description of his own biography at another place, and he's like, I was the best Jew ever. I was trained in the best schools. You know, according to the law, I was blameless. Nobody could ever point the finger at me and be like, you didn't do a good job. He's like, I was the most faithful. But here he says, he he owns up and he says, but I blew it. I blew it. He names his sin. And what he's doing is humbling himself so that his pride isn't keeping him from being a useful tool to Jesus. A lot of times that's what happens. Our pride ends up keeping us from being a useful tool in the master's hands. He's trying to use us in a specific way. He's like, you know, you specifically, you're made out to be a hammer or you're a screwdriver and you're like, I don't want to be that. I want to be like, you know, I want to be like a, a, a chopping axe. I want to be like a tomahawk or I want to be like, you know, look, like whatever it is. You're like, me as the tool, I'm deciding what I'm going to be. I'm not that. You can't put me on something as so lowly as the plunger. I don't want to be the, the lowly plunger. But our pride keeps us from being a useful tool in the master's hands. So we want to place ourselves in a position where, like Paul, we're able to name our sin and say what God has saved us from without glorifying that sin, right? So when you're communicating your testimony, you're talking about what God has saved you from, but it's not like, oh, you know, you're not trying to tell the world's best testimony of, like, how crazy and, you know, gnarly your testimony is. It isn't like you're, like, um, you know, behind the music, VH1 behind the music of, like, how, how gnarly your history was, and you're trying to like embellish it and paint this crazy picture, and people are like, you know, having to see all this. But what you're trying to do is paint a picture of I was lost and now I'm found. There was a deep darkness, and Jesus saved me. I've been rescued, I've been changed, I've been transformed by the blood of the Lamb. And so, Paul, he names his sin here. He, 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 Puts it into three categories for us. He calls himself a blasphemer. It means he spoke evil of Jesus and he caused others to blaspheme. A persecutor, he tried to destroy the church. In Acts 8, chapter uh, chapter 8, verse 3, it tells us that uh, Saul, who is the same person, Paul, was ravaging the church. That's a description, right? Ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It was uh, Paul, who was then named Saul, who stood at the execution of Stephen. He was holding uh, the coats there as they were uh, killing Stephen, who was testifying of, uh, to the gospel. He was, he was proclaiming Christ. Paul was gnarly. He was involved in some bad stuff. And then it goes on, and he says, Thirdly, he was an insolent opponent. It it means that he found satisfaction in the insult and humiliation of others. Now, the way that Paul structures this, he puts this together where he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, and then an insolent opponent. He puts those three together in an increasing level of intensity, going from least to worst. A blasphemer is kind of bad in that sense. And then a persecutor, there's some physical violence now happening. And then an insolent opponent is not just an objective execution of the law, but rather he's taking pleasure in it. He's, He's enjoying this. He's enjoying humiliating and shaming others. And then he goes on to say, but he received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul was convinced that what he did, these things he was doing for God. He wasn't doing these things out of defiance to God. He thought that he was on the right track. Like, he's defending uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. He is defending everything that he grew up in. And so he received mercy because he wasn't just this... uh, Opponent who is knowingly and purposefully attacking, but he had this great passion, and the Lord rechannels it for the gospel. And so, after naming his sin, he paints this picture God is good, and Paul's a terrible wreck. But he says in verse 13, he's a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent uh, opponent. But in verse 14, he says, look how good God is. This is, this is the way that our actions, in our, or the, the way that we should paint the picture in our testimony. In verse 14, he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's a great description. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. There is so much that it covered, it washed over all of my sin. He, he tells us, Paul's sin was great. Our sin is great, but the grace of God is greater still. Romans 5 verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That, that means that it it was set up to highlight how truly wicked we can be. The law was put there to as a standard so that we might have our conduct contrasted by how we acted uh, in contrast to the law. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, the more that we sinned, grace abounded all the more. We can't out-sin grace, but that grace is only found when we place our trust in Christ for salvation. So Paul reiterates here, I'm bad news, I'm awful, I've had a terrible history, but God is good. We have to recognize our sin. And, and it's important that we do that so that way we become a useful tool. We're told in 1 John that if we have no sin, if we think we have no sin, we're full of pride. 1 John one eight tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So because we've sinned, Paul now gives us Christ's mission, sin problem. Now here's the mission of Christ. Look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So here he's telling Timothy, here's some sound doctrine. Here's uh, the, the, what you need to know. The church is supposed to be about Jesus and helping, know, helping people know Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, so he says. Here it is, in a nutshell: Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. First part, boom. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I love what he 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 how he paints this picture here because he doesn't he he kind of starts in the middle. He he doesn't start with you know what what we see in. Uh, the nativity. He doesn't start at like the incarnation uh, moment, like Jesus was born here as a baby. He says Jesus existed with the Father from eternity past, and he broke into the world, the inbreaking of Christ into the world, because there was a sin problem. As, uh, As the Lord saw man sin in the garden, ever since that moment, God has a plan in place to redeem and rescue. And so here, as Jesus dwelt with the Father, as we looked at in Philippians, he was sent. He made himself uh, of no reputation. He took the form of a servant, uh, came in the likeness of human flesh, and lived among us a perfect life on our behalf. And he came with a specific purpose to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, and to conquer death forever. This was his mission. In Mark ten forty five, we looked at this. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what Paul is trying to get at here. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, here's what he says here. There's a sin problem, and Jesus came to fix it. So when we think about our lives, the things that we're dealing with, the the struggles... Your opponent of Satan's sin and death, Jesus defeated all those things already at the cross. Those people who are in the world who are lost, who are sinners, they stand in judgment already. I love that that's how how Jesus communicates that in John uh, 3.17, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world didn't need the condemning because it was already condemned. Jesus didn't need to re-condemn something that was already under judgment. He didn't need to come and say, you guys are all messed up. It was already all messed up. He came to rescue that which was already condemned, that which was already under judgment. And so here, Paul is reminding Timothy, reminding uh, the Ephesian church as he's writing here, he's preaching the gospel to the church, right? We come back to this again and again. This is a drum that we beat all the time. The gospel is not only for the non-believer, but for the believer. We're returning to the gospel all the time that tells us who we are and what Jesus has done for us, not what we must do for him. And then out of the gospel, we then live our lives. And and so we want to receive what Paul has been speaking to the Ephesian church here in, in preaching the gospel to them. And it's important that we do this because when we receive the gospel, it grounds us in what we've been saved from. First, we've it tells us we've been saved from sin. There's that sin problem. It creates a dependency on Christ because we have to readily admit that we cannot save ourselves. So when we deal with the gospel and handle it, we're also recognizing that he must save us. We cannot save ourselves. And then it brings us unity around Christ. We've been saved not just from sin but we've been saved to an inheritance we've been saved to a new family we're not just rescued and sent out you know to float in the wind but we're made into a new family all who have been who have been saved all who have received Christ are made into this new spiritual family this new household so it brings us unity it binds us all together through Jesus so Paul at the end of verse 15 He goes on, after uh, saying Christ's mission, he then kind of gives himself another little shout-out. And he's completely serious here. He says, This saying is trustworthy trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul names himself as the worst of all sinners. Which like totally doesn't make sense to you and I because we're like Homie wrote like, you know, more books of the New Testament than anybody else. So you're pretty much pretty awesome. (laughs) You know, like he planted all the churches that you know, tons of churches in that area and we're here today because like he was faithful. In 1 Corinthians 15, he describes himself as the least of the, of the apostles. And then he says that he is unworthy to be called an apostle, even though Jesus called him to be an apostle. And he says the reason is because he persecuted the church of God. He's like, I don't get it. I'm being made a leader, but I shouldn't be made a leader because I was trying to destroy the thing that I'm being made a leader of. It's, it's radical how grace works. Jesus takes broken, messed up people and turns them into radical tools for his glory. Paul says that he's the worst of the worst, the chief of sinners. He identifies with his sin and he knew that through God's grace and mercy that he could be enabled through the Holy Spirit to do these things, to to do the things that God has called him to do. And then in verse 16, he goes on, he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So because Paul was the chief of sinners, he was the greatest of them all, he is being made an example a pattern of grace that would be poured out on all believers in the future. The Jews could look at Paul and they could say, if this guy was the best Jew, he was like our shining star. He was the superstar. He was the most highly educated. He was blameless according to the law. If he could get in and he was the greatest opposer of this, then anybody could get in. If Paul could get in, anybody could get in. He's an example of the patience and compassion and long suffering the grace of God he's an example when we think about an example what, what the word that he's actually is being used here is a pattern it's a cutout for others to view right it's if if you've ever had to uh, do do Let's be real. Not many people here are doing sewing. So, like, let's use a different example. But if you if you had a pattern, you would have that would be able to be duplicated. In, in our day and age, I kind of think look at this through the view a pattern or example of uh, things like uh, recipe websites. Right? You get the you get a recipe, and you go and you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be adventurous. I've, you know, I've been watching, like, Emeril, and, like, I've been watching the Food Network, and I'm about to, like, throw down here, and I feel like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really do some great work. You think, you know, you got some culinary skills, and you're about to make a great meal. And then you get to the recipe, and it's, like, using words that, like, maybe you don't really know, you know, like, French words for the actual food, and you're like, I'm not really sure what that is. And you're trying to, like, go through it. But then how much more confidence does it give you when it gets to the one with the step-by-step pictures? Right, You get the step-by-step pictures, ball games changed. If it's just the words, you're in trouble. You're like, Bonch too, I don't even know what that is. I have zero idea. But then it shows you the pictures, you're like, oh, snow peas. You know exactly what that is. Then you can grab that, and then you go through it. Paul is being made a pattern similarly. This resounds really loudly with me because as someone who... Feels like I have maybe some skills, uh, but I have more technical skills, uh, computer-wise, technology skills. I can navigate YouTube instructions really well. So if I need to fix my car or the window's broken, I don't have to go to the mechanic. I can go in there and type in the year and the car, and someone has made a video about like, how to fix my window. I'm like, I don't know how it is, but I can watch for five seconds and pause it and do what they did, and then watch for another five seconds and pause it and do what they did. It's It's awesome. So when I read about Paul, you know, just this guy who was killing and maiming people and persecuting the church and dragging people out of houses, I mean, you know, you can imagine, like, what he was doing there, dragging, like, parents out with, like, kids who were trailing them and just how gnarly that was. In the time of my life or or in the moments of my life where I've sinned and I need to repent, I don't have to feel shame. I can look and say, you know, the Lord's grace has overflowed to Paul. The Lord's grace can overflow to me. I can be free of shame and sin. I've, given, I've been given an example, not only through Paul being a, a great sinner, but through Jesus giving a great sacrifice. So we want to remember, and more than remembering that Paul is a great, pat- is a great pattern, a great example for us, We want to remember that Jesus' blood, his work upon the cross, was a greater sacrifice than we will ever know. It can forgive all sin. And a lot of times, when we are unwilling to repent of our sin, when we are living in moments of shame, when we are uh, wanting to kind of stew in our own condemnation, what we're actually doing is saying Jesus' blood isn't strong enough to forgive what I've done. I can't forgive myself. You know, you ever hear people talk about that? Like, you need to forgive yourself first. When you're withholding that, you need to repent first because ultimately the most offended party is God, if you've ever sinned. God is ultimately the, the greatest offended party. When you sin against someone else, you're ultimately first sinning against God. But you need to deal with it knowing that Jesus' blood can overcome all sin. And so when we refuse to repent, when we refuse, uh, or, or when we want to wallow and we want to separate ourselves or punish ourselves, you know, I remember this growing up. It was like, if, I remember growing up, like, you know, being a teenager and thinking, like, if I did something and I felt like I sinned, Then it was like, okay, I need to wait like a couple days before like I read my Bible again, because like I I'm not gonna be ready. I won't be like in a spiritual state. And essentially what I was saying was like, I cannot come to the cross right now because Jesus' blood isn't strong enough, his work isn't complete enough to forgive that sin. But when we sin, because Christ's work is complete enough, it is great enough when we sin, we can instantly run to the cross and deal with sin because he has forgiven our sin. So our repentance is linked with worship. Our repentance is linked with recognizing who God is, and that's where Paul goes next in verse 17. He goes on with this massive worship throwdown. He, okay, he gives his testimony right after every testimony and every Talk of how awesome God is and what He's done and how He saved us should end with worship. You talk about how amazing God is. Verse 17, He goes on, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He gives His testimony. He's like, Okay, now we got to respond in worship because you can't just say all of these things about how radical and amazing and awesome God is and then be like, Oh, it was kind of okay. You have to respond. In worship, and you either respond in a way that you are rejecting that, or you respond in bowing your knee in worship. So a proper view of Christ's work, when you properly understand the gospel, it will lead you to worship. Okay? If to put it into a a quick catchphrase for you, your theology, your knowledge of God, about God, the study of God, your theology should lead to doxology, that's worship. So we don't want to study, to know God, know about God, and you know we're not creating this encyclopedia or a report about God. Here's what God's like. But it should lead to our study of God is to know Him for the purpose of worship. Theology should then point to doxology, worship. Now, after going on, On this testimony, he comes back to the matter at hand, defeating the false teachers. They're false, and he wants to point out there's a true and there's a false. That's just how it is, okay? There's an absolute. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. There's one way to know God, and if you don't go that way, you don't go there at all. Jesus said, uh, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. All roads do not lead to one place. Okay? We need to understand this. If I wanted to go to San Francisco, I I don't take the 80 and tell a friend, you know, who's down in Southern California, you take the 15 and we'll both end up there. They need very specific instructions to get to that one place. If they take the 15, they're going to end up in Canada. That's way different than San Francisco. Okay? We must be clear, as Paul says, there's a way and we um there's a true and a false. And and Paul tells Timothy to protect this. In verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by uh, that by them you may wage the good warfare. <clears throat> so this charge that Paul mentions here is uh He's given to Timothy in verses 3 and 5 to rebuke these false teachers. And he tells them that you should wage the good warfare. You should be ready to fight. Because when we fight against falsehood, when we fight against uh, the lies of the enemy, when we fight against the systems of the world that are coming against God, it's going to be war. We fight, Ephesians tells us, a spiritual battle. We're not having this physical battle, but we are waging war against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, and so therefore, Paul tells us in uh, Ephesians that we ought to put on the armor of God to be ready. He tells us further uh, in uh, his letter to the Corinthians that we should be mindful to know the schemes of the enemy. Know how he fights. Not just be prepared for defense, but you need to to offensively know how he fights. Know how he works. He's calling us to wisdom. right? We're told, and we looked at last week in Colossians, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Know the schemes of the enemy. Know how he fights, and know how you ought to conduct yourself. And so we want to be able to Uh, Be wise in that. Now, he goes on he says that we should wage good warfare. And he says, in these two ways, holding faith and a good conscience. These two things together. It's not enough just to have good doctrine. You must have faith, active trust in Christ. And then you can't either have baseless faith either. You can't just say, oh, I I only just believe. You know, you have to also have sound doctrine, the word, together. In Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 17, we're told faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God. So you need those together. You can't just have faith only. You can't just have this uh, thought that, like, a, a blind trust, but you have to have a sound doctrine together with it. You develop faith on the basis of that sound doctrine by hearing the word of God. Now, he gives us an example in verse 20 of two men who have not heeded the advice. He says, among whom, or he says, uh, by reject, sorry, verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Some have rejected the faith. They've rejected a good conscience. They've rejected sound doctrine. This was a choice that was being made. They heard, and then they rejected. This was the same thing, sadly, that happened to Demas. We looked at this, uh, this guy, Demas, last week in Colossians 4. He was the one who was named with Luke, Luke the phy- physician, and in, in Demas. He, Paul sends like his greetings there. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're told that what happened with Demas in uh, 2 Timothy 4:10 it says for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. That's the description around him. He got distracted. Paul calls out these men because they were swayed by the cares of this world. They were swayed by looking at the culture, they were swayed by looking at those who were trying to uh, convince them of their ways of life. And for Demas, he's described as being in love with this present world, not having the eternal perspective, not joining in Christ's mission, but thinking the here and now, this is it. So Paul says, for these guys, we've got to, you know, basically he says, what we're going to do is we're going we're to put them out of the church, and what he's essentially doing is exercising church discipline. Uh, this is not the first time that this has been done by Paul. He did this in Corinth. Corinth. Uh, in First Corinthians chapter 5, there was a, a man who was sleeping with his mother and Paul's instruction was the same. He said that you were to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul says this guy is not a part of the church. He needs to get put out. He needs to be under church discipline, give him over. And the point of it is not punishment, but discipline. Okay? Jesus has been punished for that sin and this is discipline. And the point of it is so that this person may become repentant. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see that this man is indeed repentant who uh, was cast out of the church. Paul's like, bring him back. Let him be back a part of the fellowship and make sure that you let him know that you love him. So it's done out of love for the church. And Paul's telling Timothy here to protect the church. And the goal of this uh, correction is family discipline protecting the name of the family, right? That's uh, That character, or those attributes that this man was uh, displaying uh, in the church of Corinth, this character of Demas, who was in love with this present world, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, have, who don't display good faith uh, or sound doctrine, these men are not displaying the attributes of God. So what Paul says is like, until you're ready to represent God's name, then you should not be a part of god 's family, you should be outside of the church, and when you 're ready, then we want to call you back in repentance. The aim is repentance and restoration, not punishment so this also enables um, the church to move forward in a mission. then those who are a part of the church aren 't having to uh, are, are able to move forward, and this doesn 't become um, You know, like sin, that's like yeast and infects other members of the body, this complacency or apathy or this person trying to promote their love of the world within the body, but rather the whole church can move forward doing what God has called them to do and is empowering them to do. So everyone moving forward on mission together. This is what uh, Paul's message is consistently the heart of the heart of his message there is, verse uh, verse sixteen. Well, verse fifteen and sixteen. First, his saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Uh, but I receive mercy, for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's message in in Colossians at the end there and here is the same. Jesus wants to know people. We want people to meet Jesus as being a part of his church. As he saved us, we want more people to know and enjoy Jesus and Paul gives us kind of this little sketch, this outline of how we ought to help people know Jesus through our testimony, through the way that we live our life, through the way that we conduct ourselves as a church family. All of these things are designed to help more people meet Jesus, and that's really what it comes down to. We want more people to meet Jesus. And the reason that we want more people to meet Jesus is verse 2. 17, Paul's response, worship, doxology. The end goal is not knowing about God. The end goal is worship. Uh, in, uh, in his book, uh, oh man, I forget the name of the book, but uh, John Piper, in one of his books, he, he wrote, he has this famous quote, that the reason that mission exists is because worship does not. The reason that mission exists is because worship does not. That's the reason that it's, you know, when we get to heaven, what, when, when we see, when we see uh, the pictures that are painted in the book of Revelation, when we see uh, the descriptions of, of these heavenly scenes where we're with Jesus, nobody is evangelizing, but there's lots of worship. Worship will end, I mean, mission will end, this evangelism will end, but but worship will continue. That's the end goal. That's where we're, we're ending up. As people who are saved by God, we're saved from our sin for God, for his glory. To know him and enjoy him forever. And so with Paul, let's join together uh, in what he says here in verse 17, responding in worship. And, and let's pray together and we'll take a moment uh, as a church to respond and worship together this morning uh, in, in our usual couple ways, and so let 's pray and uh, we 'll hop into it together <coughs> lord we're we're thankful for um, christ's work at the cross lord we 're thankful that you have paid the price for our sins, Lord, every sin that is In our view, great or small, Lord, you have defeated um, the grave. Lord, we do not have to pay that that price because you have already paid for our sin. Lord, in this morning, we want to recognize that our sin, no matter how great or small, ultimately is us falling short of your glory. Lord, you, we're told in the book of Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, even those small sins are us falling short of your glory. And so, Lord, we want to recognize that those smallest things, Lord, those are things that you had to shed your blood for. Whether our sin be large or small, whether our sin, Lord, be uh, due to our own self-condemnation, or our own self-pity, Lord, whether it would be due to our blasphemy as Paul was a blasphemer, whether it would be due to our persecuting others, whether it would be um, a matter of injuring or bullying, Lord, uh, whatever it would be, Lord, there's many ways in which we've fallen short. Lord, many of us in, in the area of just being self-righteous Pharisees, Lord, thinking that we are good enough and that we've hardly done anything wrong and we're not really that bad, even that, Lord, is an offense to you as we've sought to live apart from you. And so, Lord, this morning we want to come in all humility and repentance, Lord, straight to the cross, remembering what you have done and how you have saved us. Lord, when we want to turn, Lord, that recognition uh, of what you've done into submission, Lord, allegiance, and a response of thanksgiving and praise. And so, Lord, may you turn our hearts and our minds now to worship you in spirit, and in truth. Lord, may Jesus be exalted as we lift our hearts and our hands to you. Lord, as we sing, um, Lord, with all that we have, Lord, may you be glorified in your church this morning. We love you. Amen.